Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent here, my co-host today, Andrew Work. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about primitive Baptists. Um, it's a very interesting study um, that we dove into, we're going to be talking about today. Um, before I hand over the reins to Andrew, a couple sources, primary sources that we used. Um, Primitive Baptists in the Wiregrass South by John Crowley and Baptists in America, a History. Um, these two were very helpful in our study. Um, I like to give out sources that I use um, for so others can use it for further study. But with that, I'll turn it over to Andrew to get us into our discussion today. All right. Thank you, Dan. Uh, yeah, so... I think the primitive Baptist movement is a very useful movement for us as particular Baptists, Reformed Baptists, to study uh, because there's a lot we can learn from them, uh, mostly of where they went wrong, but a few things that are also edifying for us to, to consider. Uh, but it, they're an interesting study because they have the same roots that we do. They stem from those particular Baptists of the 17th century in England. Um it, who then came over to America. Uh, in 1707, the Philadelphia Association was established, uh, which became the most influential association in North America. And this was this was founded from particular Baptists in, in England. Uh, Keach was very influential in those circles, uh, I believe Hercules Collins as well. Um, but regardless... They they uh, they like us stem from there, so they're kind of our uh, our theological cousins in a sense. So uh, so who are they and where did they go? Well, there's not too many of them left today, but every once in a while you'll you'll see them, especially in Appalachia and other parts of the South. Um, they've, they're kind of a waning denomination, um, but they're they're known today for their strong predestinarian beliefs. Um, but they're not quite Calvinists. They usually they usually object uh, when people call them them Calvinists, even though their ancestors would have worn that badge with honor. Today, Primitive Baptists distinguish themselves uh, from that. Uh, you'll often hear them say that what distinguishes them from us is that everything else that other Christians believe are means of salvation, are effects of salvation. So even faith. They will usually say, and again, there are some exceptions because it's a very broad and diverse group. They are even, uh, uh, but but most of them will say that faith itself is an effect of salvation and not even an, a bare instrumental means of receiving salvation, except for something called time salvation, which is a temporal salvation, but not your right standing before God and Jesus Christ. So anyways, to get to a little bit of uh, an outline of their history, um, so... Uh, again, like I said, they have their roots in, in America, uh, in the Philadelphia Association, which uh, planted like, uh, similar associations and had partnerships with similar associations like the Charleston Association, the Kahuki Association in North Carolina, the latter of which would be very pivotal in the Primitive Baptist movement later. But uh, by the mid-1700s, the, the Baptist landscape had started to change. And this came with the First Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening led by people such as George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Uh, what this uh, caused was a, a great emphasis on experience. 
George Whitfield was famous for much of his theatrics when he went around preaching. He, I, I believe he studied theater in, in, in college. Uh, and, and that played a very he heavy emphasis in the first Great Awakening. Uh, and I, I want to pause here for a second to say that a lot of people have the view that the second Great Awakening was bad, but the first Great Awakening was good. And the more you study it, the, the less true that, that conclusion seems to be. The first Great Awakening had problems as well. Many people were indeed saved through the First Great Awakening. I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to minimize the countless souls that were saved under George Whitfield's preaching. But because of that emphasis on theatrics and experience and results, that, that was probably the seeds of a lot of the pragmatism we see in American Christianity today, which really flourished in the Second Great Awakening especially. But even back then, it started to cause problems. They didn't have the same care for doctrinal order or, um, or the or order in church practice that we do today. And a lot of the people who came from that had very mixed uh, theology, to, to say the least. Um, Dan, and I don't know seems, if you wanted to... Yeah. Yeah, yeah with um, the Great Awakening, it didn't do very well for Baptists. Um, it seemed to destroy um, a lot of the traditional Baptists that were, uh, that were in effect. Um, and, you know, like we'll see with the separate Baptists, they kind of spawned this new group of Baptists that really were shepherded under Whitfield, um, but that led to that experience-oriented mindset and a less um, regulated worship or a less regulated experience, so to speak, with regards to, um, with regards to salvation. It, it's, it's very interesting to see how that dive kind of goes. And, and there's this less emphasis on ecclesiology, the local church, like with Whitfield. Um, although, like you said, there are probably plenty of people who were saved under him, and he did preach a sound gospel. He was a very solid preacher, but there was this um, push away from the local church. He didn't see it as very important, um, and I think that caused him to butt heads with some people uh, in the broader uh, Christian community at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And you see that influencing not only the uh, the missionary Baptists who would come along, but also while the primitives would rebel against part of that, they also embraced a lot of the uh, styles and and the like that came from the Great Awakening. That was very influential in their own movement as well. Um, so as, as Dan already alluded to, from the Great Awakening came what were called the separate Baptists, uh, and they're the, the byproduct of, of much of George Whitfield's preaching Although they they became Baptists, they they didn't believe in infant baptism like George Whitfield believed in. Um, but they they went off into some really weird directions in terms of their practice and again their emphasis on experience. I wanted to read a a, a quote from um, and this is again uh, Crowley's book here, Primitive Baptists in the Wild, uh, Wiregrass South. And there's a quote about one uh, separate uh, Baptist uh, communion service. Uh, that, that was recorded by a, by a contemporary. And so the quote reads, One fellow mounted on a bench with the bread and bawling, See the body of Christ. Another with the cup running around and bellowing, Who cleanses his soul with the blood of Christ? And a thousand other extravagancies. One on his knees in a posture of prayer, Others singing, some howling, those ranting, those crying, Others dancing, skipping, laughing, and rejoicing. 
hear two or three women falling on their backs, kicking up their heels, exposing their nakedness to all bystanders, and others sitting pensive in deep melancholy, lost in abstraction, like statues, quite insensible. And when roused by the spectators from their pretended reveries, transports, and indecent postures and actions, declaring that they knew naught of the matter, that their souls had taken flight to heaven, and they knew nothing of what they said or did. This is not exactly well, what apostolic Christianity looked like. I, I can think of, I can think of, you know, some of Paul's instructions off the top of my head. Okay, you know, the the women are being immodest in church. They're not sitting mm -hmm. quietly in the in the. You know, there's no decency in an order like Corinthians says to do. It's like all of that church polity that was supposed to be regulated by Scripture just went out the door. Yeah, yeah. Paul says very plainly, like, hey, you don't want to be such in your worship that people come in and they think you're crazy. Like in chapter four, right. in the first yeah, speaking in tongues. That. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, like, and even when the charismatic gifts were active, he said, well, do it orderly one by one so people don't think you're crazy when you come in. <laughs> Because the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. And and the fruits of the spirit are peace and self-control. And like they don't, it doesn't look like this. That's not the New right. Testament example we have. Yep. But some of that stuff kind of trickled into the Baptist movement at the time more broadly. Um, I should say first that uh with the coming of the separates came what are called the regular Baptists, who who basically started calling themselves that to distinguish themselves from the separates. Like, oh, we don't want to have anything to do with this shenanigans. They're basically the, they were the particular Baptists. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's what the old particular Baptists started calling themselves was regular Baptists. Um, I think there's still people to this day who call themselves regular Baptists, but I don't think they have that much common doctrinally with the original ones. Um, but, uh, and it's also confusing because there are later, uh, more Arminian Baptists who called themselves regular Baptists, but for completely different reasons. Um, anyways, uh, but even though you had this split between the separates and the regulars, it wasn't a permanent division between uh, the, the two of them. Um, it, there, there, there was a, uh, a reunification that eventually took place, like in Virginia, for example, in, um, I, I believe this is 1787. Yep. Uh, they were uh, regular separate Baptists united into one group of Baptists again. Uh, and those, th this was probably because the regulars saw how many separates that there were, and they might have admired some things about them, like like personal holiness and the like. And, but I think it was largely a numbers thing. And they have all these Baptists who's out there, and like, do we have anything in common with them? Can we unite with them at all? And they determined that they could uh, unite under the uh, banner of the Philadelphia Confession, which, for those who don't know, it's it's the 1689 plus two additional sections, um, but otherwise it's the 1689. Uh, well, but they did it. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm trying to cut you off. Oh no, no, go ahead. Um, you know, with the separate Baptists, another thing that crept into them. Um, you know, like you said, they did a they did adopt the 1677 LBCF, but they they struggled with the extent of the atonement too. You know, you had the distinction mm. between the primitive and the missionary Baptists. Um, that would that would really become a distinction. So it's like they they adopted the confession, but then they started to introduce their own understandings of key distinctives. Like a distinctive of being a particular Baptist is that you believe in a particular redemption. That's where our name comes from. 
Yeah. Uh, and then once they started kind of deviating from that and, and it's like, okay, do you believe in this confession or not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and that was one of the issue with the separates is they had a very loose doctrine, right? They, they were, they were very loose doctrinally. Some were more Arminian, some were more Calvinistic and they were kind of all over the, the map. So when they tried to finally pin them down, the regulars, that is, they try to pin down the separates and say like, hey, unite with us under the Philadelphia Confession. They agreed to do that, but it was under pretty loose conditions. So I'm going to read from page 12 of, of this book. There's a, there's a quote uh, when they united that they were, they were adopting the Philadelphia Confession, but to, quote, prevent it from usurping a tyrannical power over the conscience of any. We do not mean that every person is bound to the strict observance of everything therein contained yet that it holds forth the essential truths of the gospel and that the doctrine of salvation by Christ and free and unmerited grace alone ought to be believed by every Christian and maintained by every minister of the gospel, end quote. So, so they said like, yeah, we're united upon this, but you don't really have to hold to this just as long as you understand that it teaches the gospel correctly and the like. So it was a very loose subscriptionism that they had. Which again, uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't claim that the 1689 is infallible, and every Reformed right. Baptist has to hold to every single thing that's in it right. uh, in order to be a Reformed Baptist. But uh, but we want to be a little bit more robust than than these guys were. It was really more just kind of a formal unity that they had, and they established the precedent that it's okay to kind of disagree with a lot of the stuff here and there. Um, and it is for some things, but when it comes to things like the doctrine of grace, the preaching of the gospel, the means of the gospel for salvation, those aren't really negotiables, but they kind of became negotiables in not only the missionary Baptists who followed, but also the primitive Baptists who, who followed as well. Um, many of the things up in the confession, they, they, had, they had a very low reverence for the opinions of their forefathers. And even even their doctrine of scripture was kind of weird, too. Um, I think it was in Crowley's book where he talked about, um, you know, the, the more charismatic route that the separates took. And and um, there were even some who believed that their sermons were inspired like scripture. Mm. Yeah, and it was it. I don't know. It's just they, they started abandoning these core doctrines. And there was this push away from having learned men in leadership. Right. They didn't believe in the really the importance of having a solid theological education and that might be where some of this came from they were just trying to learn these things on their own and they didn't have good guidance and good guidelines to help keep them on the path learning from history right and learning yeah. from men who knew more than they did yes trying to figure this out on their own and i think that contributed to some of the errors that they contributed to their error no i i totally agree they they not only had a very low value on formal education, which in some sense is understandable because the way some people talk today, you'd think that a seminary degree was an additional qualification that Paul gave to elders of a church. Yeah, we don't not. believe that. <laughs> yeah, historically, the, the primary, and biblically, I should say, biblically, the, the primary means of, of discipling the next generation of pastors is from one pastor to the next, from elders to yep. elders, and then... And then also at times pulling in other faithful ministers and other faithful churches to assist in that. You see Paul sending Titus places, for example, and they would be received by the local churches. Um, so so that that's uh, that was definitely uh, that, so I understand that aspect of it. 
but uh, but they kind of took it to the level where it seems like they just don't want like real education at all. Like even like they didn't place a heavy emphasis of receiving good education from those over you before. Yeah, like, it was just kind of like educate theological education as a principle is not good. Yeah, yeah, it, it yeah. seems to kind of go that way. They're more about experience. Yeah, you said like some of them even thought they had inspired sermons, and some primitives to this day believe that. Uh, I, I think it was in Crowley's book too. Uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but one primitive Baptist uh, minister was saying like, "Don't worry, like this, my I don't teach my sermons are inspired. Like that's that's an error." But then one of the members of the congregation is like, "Oh yeah, I wouldn't think your sermons are inspired either." <laughs> you oh. know, but, but 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 the idea was in general they thought like that could be the Spirit would speak through them. And then you're no different than the Pentecostals who think they exactly. receive a word from God speaking in tongues or whatever it might be. There, there's a lot of overlap between some yeah. of that Great Awakening uh, Awakening uh, uh, theology in the pews, we should say. Can we go uh, back to Can we go back to the 17th century, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but there's a lot of overlap between the effects that that had. Again, Whitfield wouldn't teach any of that, of course. I'm not not accusing them, That's but this great. is kind of yeah. the this is kind of the fruits of of some of them on the on the more pew levels, uh, which led to these movements. Um, and 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 yeah, it, it, there's a lot of overlap between that and and more Pentecostal experience. Uh, it's it's very interesting. You, you see some overlap there. But um, anyways, to, to continue the, the historical survey, so as a reminder, we're in the late 18th century at this point. The regulars and the separates have reunited into just one broad Baptist body in America. Again, not like not that there's a formal denomination. This is just kind of the, the trends of things, um, that those distinctives were being lost. Um, uh, but, but anyways, uh, you also had the introduction of more hyper-Calvinistic beliefs among many of them. Some of this was a response to, or an overreaction to Arminian Methodists, so like really like strengthening their predestinarian preaching as much as possible. Uh, we, we will have to say that John Gill has some blame in this, which I hate to say because I love John Gill. He's one of my favorite theologians. But but he did have a few hyper-Calvinistic tendencies. He was not a hyper-Calvinist. I think people who say were are, are taking it too far. He still believed in the preaching to the sinners and the like, mm -hmm. although he would object to the language of offer when you're doing that. You're, you're, you're preaching the suitability of Christ, but don't actually like offer Christ to them is, is how he would, he would put it. He also taught uh, justification from eternity. Uh, and really denying the use of faith That's as a right. instrumental I about that. means yep. of justification. Yep. So that was definitely a problem that he had, uh, and that and he was very influential of, among the Baptists in, in those circles. Uh, so I think that started getting the ball rolling. He he wasn't where they would be, but it kind of got the ball rolling for the future generations that uh, that followed. Um, but anyways. The real split where the primitives come out of is is from the missionary controversy, which again has its roots in the Great Awakening. Uh, a lot of the zeal that came from that and the the, the emphasis of, of of experience and results over over um, orderly means uh, came this zeal that like that using any method whatsoever let's let's get the gospel out to the ends of the world. Which of course we we definitely want the gospel to go out in the to the ends of the world, but it's a manner of are we doing this 
using the institutions Christ gave us in the ways he's told us to do this, or are we inventing our own means to get this done? And that's the, that's the issue. So this really came a lot from um, Andrew Fuller and William Carey, who, who I'm not trying to lambast at all. I think in many ways these were good men of God. Yeah, I think um, Andrew Fuller was a particular Baptist. Yes, he was. And he, he, uh, he very much pushed the free offer of the gospel among our circles, which he wasn't the first to, to preach that. You can Although see he that did get pushed back. <laughs> yeah, he did. And a lot of it was from the more hyper-Calvinistic elements mm -hmm. that were emerging at the time. Um, and they call everybody who believes in the free offer of the gospel Fullerites now, even though there are people <laughs> all the way in the 17th century who were in our circles who were preaching the offer of the gospel. Um, but anyways... Um, so that was, uh, but, but he tied that heavenly, which I think is good theology. You, scripture uses the language of offering, uh, of Christ to people. Like he says, whosoever wills come to the fountain mm. of, uh, of, of life and may drink from them. But, um, so I think scripture does use that kind of language and it's okay to use as long as we understand that Christ didn't actually die for the people who won't receive it. Right. And he didn't have the intention of saving them. As long as we understand those things, it's okay to use that language. Uh, because it is true that it's the instrumental means of receiving him. It's just that they won't because he hasn't decreed they'll receive him. Uh, but anyways, uh, but Fuller really tied this to the hip of a lot of uh, the, the modern missionary uh, means that were being used. And he founded the first missionary society in Baptist circles in 1792. Uh and, and again, this was the first of its kind. We didn't really have things like this before that, like missionary societies and or even theological seminaries among Baptists. Those were these are all new things that kind of came at the tail end of the first Great Awakening. Um, and again, a, a lot of good good intentions behind these things, but sometimes they would uh, fall outside of the parameters Christ gave to to accomplish these things. So that was something that the primitives latched onto. And it seems that's one of the things that they pushed away from was the fact that, um, you know, they thought that these societies or these parachurch ministries were just greedy. You know, they were yes. more concerned about money than they were about actually doing the work. And maybe they were right mm. to some extent. It probably as you see more of these societies move away from the local church, you started to probably see more emphasis on the financial aspect and getting people to buy into your cause yeah and they would use great awakening preaching methodology to do it which was again to like really dramatize the situation they would bring in like relics from india like look at the darkness they're 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 in so now give us money and we'll go take care of it we'll send a preacher over there and the like and, and that's not exactly the money ra raising techniques we see in the new it's Testament. exploiting people uh, <laughs> yeah yeah or appealing to their emotions to try to Right. Involved. Just like make, make a decision now. Let's 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 pass out the offering plate. If you're feeling right. convicted, put that money in now. Uh, and that was a big thing that the primitives had a problem with, and understandably so. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and and I'll, I'll say now that a lot of the initial uh, uh, things the primitives were about were were not bad. They did have a zeal for the regulative principle uh, and how to apply that in yep. um, not only sacramentology but ecclesiology. As well as Baptists historically have have um, have have done, so the first uh, the first real declaration of non fellowship that started the ball rolling with the primitives was in 1827. So this was the uh, 
Kahuki Declaration, or as it is also interestingly known as the Declaration of the Reformed Baptist Churches in the state of North Carolina. Now, that's very interesting because um, most people uh, don't believe that the, the, the name Reformed Baptist really began to be applied to us until uh, the early 20th century uh, as people were in uh, Westminster with Baptist uh, convictions, Westminster Seminary. And that's when the name started becoming applied to them. And that might be very well true for our movement. It, it might very well be a complete coincidence. Um, I wouldn't doubt that that's the case. But but at least this is the first or earliest time I've heard the term Reformed Baptist used is when I was studying this issue, that these guys actually did call themselves Reformed Baptist. Although I believe this was new for them at the time. I don't think people before that, because part of what they announced in their minutes when they gave forth this declaration was that they're now going to be called the Reformed Baptist uh, Association um, in Kentucky. Uh, I, I don't remember the full name that they had, but, but that was part of their declaration. But anyways, originally their arguments against missionary societies, theological seminaries, and the like, it, it was based on the regulative principle and pragmatics. Uh, so here's a quote from this uh, Kahuki Declaration. We hesitate not to say that the societies and practices already referred to have no warrant from the New Testament, nor in the example and practice of Christ or the apostles. We also well know that our unhired and unlearned but laborious and faithful predecessors in the ministry brought the Baptist community to a greater state of purity, peace, and prosperity than all these unhallowed schemes and missionary operations have done or ever will be able to do with all their parade and begging of money. So uh, you, you can see here, what, what was their point of emphasis? It wasn't because they were hyper-Calvinists, because they weren't yet. Uh, it was because they didn't think these practices had warrant from the New Testament. It's like, hey, the New Testament is our guiding document for how we conduct these things, and the way these guys are doing it does not have a scriptural basis. And that was the reason, initially, initially this was their reason for opposing these societies. Uh, we'll see that that changed over time. And I would say we would agree with that in principle. Yes. Um, that, you know, these parachurch ministries by themselves are not meant to be um, established and they're not found biblically. Um, I think the, these type of organizations are great as long as they're under the authority of the local church and being supported primarily by the local church. Um, and and so, there are some that are, right? Um, yep. and, and that's something I want to bring out, too, because... Uh, I didn't want to give people the impression that I'm lambasting anything that calls itself a missionary society or uh, right. or a seminary. Yep. Uh, two good examples would be uh, the Heart Cry Missionary Society. They are under the authority of a local church, and they are establishing local churches, and they're sending money to people in local churches in those areas. And I think that is following the biblical parameters. They're under the authority of of the elders and congregation of a local church. They're not an independent body doing the job of a local church on behalf of churches and it's helpful um, to have a kind of a, a specific entity to do that because the work is laborious yeah. and it requires a lot of attention so having dedicated men who can really do that is helpful while still being under the authority and watchful eye of of a church yeah and and uh that's that's exactly right and it has scriptural basis too like paul would would uh would would pull money from uh, many churches together and they would they put it to one other churches so we have yep. that example of local churches collaborating 
and uh, funneling their funds to one body, or in that case, an apostle. But that was an exceptional circumstance. I would say I'd say the normative circumstance is a local church body who would distribute on behalf of other people. And we have uh, uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle doing yep. the same thing, uh, going more explicitly under the name of just a church, though, as opposed to right. a missionary <laughs> society, which I like personally because I, I, you know, there's no question. Cause cause, yeah, and because historically they were more independent. So we want to. I, I like that you draw a line between us and, and their methods right. of doing things. Um, but, but you know, I'm not going to quabble about the name too much. If you're doing New Testament practice, I can, I can support you. And yep. an example for the seminaries is one that uh, our church actually partners with, which is CBTS. And uh, I think that's totally appropriate what they're doing because they're, again, under a local church uh, in, in Kentucky, and they're also administering through local churches. They're not pulling people away from them. Uh, to 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 not be discipled under the normal means of their own elders and the like. Rather, like through our technology today, they, we're we're learning in the context of our, our local church from teachers and the like, elders and pastors who are approved by another local church that we're in fellowship with. So so that's definitely to me that that fits within the biblical parameters. So don't take what we're saying as too sweeping here. Um, we, we don't want to just say, as long as it calls itself a seminary or missionary society, it's bad. But but we do want to say that these things should be done in the New Testament way, and we shouldn't be supporting organizations that are taking the job that Christ gave to his church from his church. And I think the original primitives were right as far as that goes. Yep. Um, so, so, yeah, so that was the Kahaki Declaration. Um, but the real thing that basically... <laughs> If the, this is the closest thing to a confession of faith for the primitives, was the Black Rock Address of 1832. And again, but you'll see the same thing. They're talking about methods and not hyper-Calvinism as their reasoning for, uh, for being opposed to these programs. Uh, let me read the introduction of it. Uh, to the particular Baptist churches of the old school in the United States. Now I'll stop right there. Notice they call themselves still the particular Baptist at, at this point in time. That that kind of nomenclature hadn't disappeared at this point. But I continue. Brethren, it constitutes a new era in the history of the Baptists when those who would follow the Lord fully and who therefore manifest a solicitude to be in all things pertaining to religion conformed to the pattern showed in the Mount are by Baptists charged with antinomianism, inertness, stupidity, etc., for refusing to go beyond the word of God, but such is the case with us. Brethren, we would not shun reproach nor seek an exemption from persecution, but we would affectionately entreat those Baptists who revile us themselves or who side with such as do to pause and consider how far they have departed from the ancient principles of the Baptists and how that in reproaching us, they stigmatize the memory of those whom they have been used to honor as eminent and useful servants of Christ and of those who have borne the brunt of the persecutions leveled against the Baptists in former ages. For it is a well-known fact that it was in ages past a uniform and distinguishing trait in the character of the Baptists that they required a thus saith the Lord, that is, direct authority from the word of God for the order and practice, as well as the doctrine they received in religion. It is true that many things to which we object as departures from the order established by the great head of the church through the ministry of his apostles are by others considered to be connected with the very essence of religion and absolutely necessary to the prosperity of Christ's kingdom. They attach great value to them because human wisdom suggests their importance. We allow the head of the church alone to judge for us, 
We therefore esteem those things to be of no use to the cause of Christ, which he has not himself instituted, end quote. So again, very clear statements of we're doing this because we don't believe that it has warrant in the, the word of God. We don't believe these modern institutions have warrant in the word of God, and Christ alone is the head of the church and has authority to establish such institutions. And uh, further, uh, they have a section on missions that I wanted to briefly quote here. Um, so, quote, previous to stating our objections to the mission plans, we will meet some of the false charges brought against us relative to the subject by a simple and unequivocal declaration that we do regard as of the first importance the command given of Christ primarily to his apostles and through them to his ministers in every age to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and do feel an earnest desire to be found acting in obedience thereunto as the providence of God directs our way and opens a door of utterance for us. We also believe it to be the duty of individuals and churches to contribute according to their abilities for the support, not only of their pastors, but also of those who go preaching the gospel among the destitute. But we at the same time contend that we have no right to depart from the order which the master himself has seen fit to lay down relative to the ministration of the word. We therefore cannot fellowship the plans for spreading the gospel generally adopted at this day under the name of missions because we consider those plans throughout a subversion of the order marked out in the New Testament. End quote. So this is very much flying in the face with what a lot of the later primitives believe, to be, to be frank with you, because they, they in strong terms say that it's actually the duty to preach the gospel to the destitute and to support those who were doing that. And we're going to see as the movement came along, as the movement progressed, they gave up on that. You will not see primitives to today for the most part. Again, I don't want to broad rush all of them, but for the most part, you will not see them saying you have a duty to preach the gospel to anybody and that it's it's really just for the sheep who are already in the fold that you that you preach the gospel to. Um, so this is unfortunate. The are, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly, right? <laughs> Um, and, that, and that's a problem right there. Um, so what what went wrong, right? It seems like they had a, a good principles to start to start with, but what went wrong? Well, we already started to allude to that. You had the influence of of those great awakening elements that uh, were in those separate Baptist elements that were not in accord with uh, with scripture and introducing all sorts of doctrinal doctrinal lukewarmness and a uh, and a very lukewarm attitude for the confession. And so they didn't see it as a big problem to depart from what the confession taught. Um, and you also had those hyper-Calvinistic elements that were starting to swarm in in the early days. Uh, I, I think what really, uh, what really did it and what caused it to be such a universal issue among them was the fact that one of the big guys behind the Black Rock Address, probably the leading figure of the early primitive Baptist movement, was a man by the name of Gilbert Beebe. And it appears that it must have been later in his life, because I think this contradicts the statement we just read from the Black Rock Address, but he began teaching something that people who have studied this have not been able to find any precedent before him, which is this thing called the uh, direct voice regeneration theory. So he, when he reads doctrines, uh, excuse me, not doctrines, when he reads statements of scripture about um, people responding to the voice of Christ, for example, he views that as reference not to any instrumental means of the word at all, 
but a direct speaking of Christ to the soul, apart from any means at all, and apart from any instrumentality of the word or a preacher or anything else. So he thinks basically people just get regenerated randomly whenever God sees fit, even if they've never heard the gospel. And so you can see what would happen at this point. Now the gospel is effectively useless to to unbelievers because you can't convert people through them. God's just going to do it in his own time. And now there's no reason at all to go to the heathen lands and to spread churches there or anything because if God wants to save them, he's going to save them. You don't need the word of God for that. He'll just he'll just come in and he'll regenerate them. Uh, it's almost a denial of secondary causes. It is, yeah. And, and I think that's essential to hyper-Calvinism is they, they like, like Arminians, ironically enough, they can't uh, distinguish primary from secondary causes, and they don't believe they can coexist. You either have a primary cause who does everything, or you have uh, secondary causes and no primary cause behind those secondary causes. And so they opted for the, for the former. So now preachers are useless and throw out passages of Scripture that say, like, how will they hear without a preacher? Uh, I'm sure they have a, a way they handle those things, but they can't handle it on the surface of it, <laughs> for <laughs> sure. Um, or the fact that we see over and over and over again in Scripture, Christ giving to his disciples uh, the authority to, say, go out and make more disciples or for administering the sacraments and the like. Like recall when he feeds the 5,000, he breaks the bread and he gives it to the disciples to, to dispense to, uh, to others. Never mind any of that. Um, they, they believe that God's just going to save you whenever he wants and you don't need preaching or anything else um, in order to, to do that. So that's kind of where they, they, uh, they went um, over time. Another thing that was somewhat influential to, to them although thankfully didn't take off that much in its extreme form, or at least not forever, that this movement dwindled, was this thing called Two-Seedsism, which was a doctrine invented by Daniel Parker, uh, who is basically the author of American Manichaeism, as some people have, have said. And I think that's accurate, because he basically has a view where God and Satan are these two opposed primary principles battling for... Uh, uh, for, for dominance in creation. And Christ has an eternal seed, not a seed that, that becomes his through regeneration and through belief in the gospel and being united to him by faith, but an eternal seed who's always his and is, and is always generating in the world. And then you have Satan's seed who's always generating in the world. And so you're either born as Christ's seeds or you're born as Satan's seed and it has nothing to do with, with preaching the gospel or anything else, hearing the gospel, accepting the gospel, nothing you're either you're part of you're part of Christ's seed or you're not uh, from birth and that was his view and some more minor versions of that kind of crept into their circles as well but thankfully i think there are only two or three true parkerian uh churches left to this point that just is completely is. throwing out particular baptist covenant theology there right oh yeah <laughs> our, our theology proper you know, more importantly, right, is it's throughout the doctrine of God. God is no longer the cause of all things, the upholder of all things. You have God yeah. and the devil, and they're uh, they're and at he's beholding to something outside of himself because he can't really overcome the you yeah know, the the ying to his yang or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. So he's not truly God in their right. worldview. They, they don't have a true God in in uh, Parkerism. So that's a, that's a real shame. So that emerged. Uh, okay, so that's 
by the by, by about the mid 19th century, these more hyper Calvinistic beliefs really took hold and and have come to dominate the the movement since then. Um, again, there there are some exceptions, and the originals didn't believe this. The originals didn't believe this stuff about not using the gospel as a means to save sinners. Um, there's there's a good example of of that 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 Crowley gives one by just by virtue of the fact that the the source of their abstracts of doctrine for the for these associations were was usually the 1689, which which clearly teaches of the gospel as a means of salvation. Um, and then the early preachers would preach to sinners to cause distress among them and to to convert them to God. And also, I think this is really telling is their earliest hymnal, which some of them still use, called the Primitive Hymns, contains uh, hymns such as this, which say, "Today, if you will hear His voice, now is the time to make your choice. Say, will you to Mount Zion go? Say, will you have this Christ or no?" Very clear language of offer, and. Um, some of them kept that belief too, like the Crawfordites in Georgia to this day believe that uh, the gospel is the ordinary means for saving sinners. Uh, one poem wrote by one of their elders in 1898 says this, Ye poor, careless sinners, come hither, I pray. Your souls are exposed and destruction is near. Uh, the way of salvation is offered today. Take warning from me if the word you will hear. He even says salvation is offered to you today. That's the language of the free offer of the gospel. That's foolerism right there. <laughs> He's a foolerite. <laughs> but no, these guys are just following the doctrine that they'd received. And um, interestingly enough, they're by far also the most conservative group of the primitive Baptists today. And they take the regulative principle to such an extreme, like to an illegalistic extreme, that they they'll make all of their church buildings out of like pine oaks and they won't have any AC or anything like that. Even so, though the first century church wasn't making their churches out of pine oaks. Well, well this is what we receive. So we're going to keep doing <laughs> it this way. And, and that's kind of how they are. But at least on those doctrinal issues, they're actually very close to us. It's just on those kind of weird application era areas. They don't, they don't make the distinction that we would about uh, substance, substance versus circumstance when it comes to the regulative principle. Right. Mm -hmm. so, so even things like air condition fall under the regulative <laughs> principle for them. Um, but anyways, all this to show is that that the beliefs they have now do, do not resemble the original movement and uh, that there are still some exceptions among them today who don't hold to those practice. But unfortunately, these views have, have, have really dominated them. Most of them, the vast majority of them are, are hyper Calvinists uh, for sure. Um, and to just give like a few kind of additional uh, pieces of information of where they've they've gone since the 1800s. Uh, one form of doctrine that's become prevalent among them now is called conditionalism, where uh, they still believe in the predestination of the saints, but they don't believe God is sovereign over basically anything else. To me, this is almost like a Gnostic uh, kind of view where you have a God who's sovereign over the spiritual, but not the physical or anything else. Um, so, so they ended up in kind of an Arminianism. This probably came from the separate streams, really, uh, where where they they think it's up to you and your own willpower to uh, receive what they call times salvation, which I already alluded to earlier. That is a salvation that 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 where you receive the temporal benefits of a good conscience and holiness of life and 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 attending church. Uh, they call that times salvation, but your eternal salvation doesn't depend on you at all uh which you know we believe it's it's unconditionally 
um, accomplished by Christ, but in the sense that not even uh, he doesn't use means in accomplishing that. He just saves people here and there, and they might not ever hear the gospel. He he decreed to save somebody in India, but because of the efforts of man, the gospel never reached there. So, but he saved anyways. Um, so that's good. Some of these ended up being universalists, by the way, too. They took it to the extreme. So God actually regenerated everybody, and they just some people hear the gospel and get they get their time salvation, and other people don't. And that's become the predominant position, not, not the universalism, but the conditionalism. Uh, the, the, those who call themselves absoluters, who believe in the predestination of all things, are in the minority now. Um, as, as it as, tends to be. <laughs> yeah. And, but again, they, they, it took them a while to get from the original documents, like the 1689, as, as late as the 1900, you had something called the Fulton Convention where uh, a good number of them met up to reaffirm the 1689, but the issue was they annotated it to death. So anytime they found doctrines they didn't agree with, they'd be like, well, they don't really mean what they're saying here. So they'd already really departed by that point, but it had that at least kind of ghostly authority to them. For the time. You but, knew it originated from there, but you're like, this is not the same thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They must, they must have not met. Baptist, we're the primitives. That's why they call themselves primitives, right? Because they think they're the originals. Right. But, so they must have believed this, but um, I don't know. These statements are confusing in here. <laughs> Gospels, the means of salvation, and uh, receiving justification when you place faith in Christ. Uh, what, what are they talking about? Um, <laughs> anyways, um, but yeah, that's the current state of them. Um, they're uh, mostly conditionalists, a few absoluters, and Almost all of them are hyper Calvinists and usually have some kind of complementary form of anti antinomianism uh, too. Um, and yeah, that's the that's the current state of things. Um, I have a small section about what what can we learn, but but Dan, did you have anything you wanted to interject beforehand? Um, I guess the only thing I'll say is I, I guess it's important to ensure that you know whatever movement you're starting or whatever um, denomination you're starting or whatever that is it not only grounded biblically but is it grounded historically mm. and you can see very clearly that uh, it wasn't and that seems to be the case with a lot of newer movements they're not grounded um, historically like you look at the particular baptists and they were not only grounding themselves in reformed orthodoxy as a whole but clearly identifying themselves with the church historically like mm. Nicaea, Chalcedon, and beyond. So it, I think you see a, a great difference in how the primitive Baptists started and started going. It wasn't really grounded in historical theology um, and ultimately scripture in some places. Um, but I think it's important to be cautious if you're going to go that route. Yeah, absolutely. And you see how their low emphasis of education is really yeah. at the root of a lot of this stuff. Uh, Church sure. is important, guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We we want to do education for scriptural things in the scriptural manner, but you still need to do that education, right? It, you, you can't just throw off all of the history of the church uh, and where you came from and everything, and be like, oh, that stuff doesn't real really matter. I, it's it just me and my Bible under the tree. That, well, the right. Bible's sufficient for all things for sure, but Christ has instituted teachers to help us, you know, 
not have to go through all of the struggles of the church again and again. And right. Again. We have, right. we have creeds and confessions which, which can point and us to the Bible church fathers and all that stuff <laughs> and help to point us to why this is the biblical position. Yes. Because most people in the first year of conversion don't have the entirety of the Bible memorized. So it's no. helpful that God puts teachers there who've had more time in the word. And we see this in Ephesians. That's one thing that Christ gives as a gift to his church because pastors teachers as a gift to his church to help us along. So, so we definitely don't want to diminish the value of, of education. And that was, I think, part of their problem. So what, what can we learn about, uh, what can we learn from their movement that's, that's beneficial for us? So uh, on the negative side of things, we've already discussed, um, you know, the importance of confessionalism, right? Uh, they, they had a low value of the confession and they, they didn't have much of a problem departing from it. And again, we don't believe the confession is infallible. We certainly don't believe that. Um, but you do want to be careful when you're departing from a consensus document of your forefathers who believed, the, who believed in the scriptures. Because uh, that's what the 1689 is in the, in the first London as well. They're consensus documents from many Baptist churches. It's not saying here's like our exhaustive systematic theology, but here's the general framework that we can all agree on. We all agree on this much. We're allowed, we, we disagree here and there on other things, but here's what we agree about. And that's what the confession is. So if you can't even agree with a consensus document from your forefathers, that's, that's, a, that's something to at least you know, pause about. Like how sure are you with your, your, your approach you're taking now? That you're doing that. Don't do it lightly. I'm not saying, of course, don't scrutinize the confession. Definitely scrutinize it in light of scripture, but but like don't don't do it so cavalierly, where like you you, you don't pause and, and think about like, am I going on the right road with this right now? So that's that's important importance of uh, of of education, uh, even if it's an informal education, like I think it normatively is. It, it, you still need to have it. And it's still important to learn about your roots. That's another thing that we can learn from them is, is the importance of, of making sure that the future generation are well equipped in the things of God. Um, as far as the, mo uh, the more positive side of things, uh, again, as we've discussed, the original goal to go by the regulative principle was, was a good goal. And it's something we should imitate today because a lot of the people in the modern Reformed Baptist movement have their ultimate origins from more missionary Baptist circles or Presbyterian circles. And so we don't want to uncritically bring in things from them, which also came from novelties of the first great awakening or things that came as the fruit of that. We want, we want to be critical about, about what we're adopting and make sure that it, it does indeed conform to uh, the scriptural pattern that, that we have. And uh, as I said earlier, Baptist, Sacramentology has always gone hand in hand with Baptist ecclesiology, even though you could theoretic theoretically imagine somebody believes in credo baptism but believes in an episcopacy. That hasn't historically been the case for Baptists because both of them have a more fundamental root, which is that New Testament church life should be grounded and regulated by the New Testament. So we can we can uh, we can appreciate that much. Uh, from them. And I especially think that's a good word in today's America where pragmatism has really dominated American Christianity, where you have CEOs really instead of pastors in churches who are adopting every sort of program under the sun, finding new and more exciting means and methods to, to uh, 
and agendas for their church to engage in. We want to be a people who are grounded by the book, accomplishing Christ's mission according to the directives that he's given us in his word. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, you're right. The The church, by and large today, has become more of a business and a corporation rather than focusing on preaching the gospel, spreading the gospel, and discipling their own churches. It's very, it while they might be somewhat centralized on themselves, there is this outward emphasis of, you know, hey, let's put ourselves out there in such a way that we can bring in as many people. And we're seeing now some of the consequences of that kind of thinking, I think, with uh, Hillsong Church, you know, Brian mm. Houston resigning in light of what seems to be a sin he was living in or committed. You know, this when your focus is not on the gospel, not on the preaching of the word properly, not on proper ecclesiology, um, there tends to be other things uh, that can creep in and that will eventually be your downfall. And, you know, the scriptures talk about the lampstand being removed, right? Revelation yes. for not obeying the head of the church. And Christ will do that to those mm -hmm. who uh, who do not follow his guidance, his word in regulating their church of worship. And I think we we kind of see um, that mindset here where there is this, you know, that the historical context that these people are in really influence who they were. And I, and I think that's where you are in any place. But I think one of the that's one of the interesting things of studying this was to see how much of an emphasis these real American historical events had upon the the Baptists, the revolution, the great awakening and things like that, how it influenced their thinking. And there was this, it just seems to have helped push them away from some of these roots that they had. Hmm. Yep. And, and being able to see that in the past helps us see that in the present as well. Yep. How much things historically. And that's one of the, the benefits of studying church history, right? We can yes. learn from the mistakes of our, of the church and our brethren from the past and go, well, you know, that look how that turned out. Oh, and this didn't comport with scripture and oh, wow, look at all the trouble they caused because they did X, Y and Z. OK, let's not do that. You know, mm -hmm. so it God has given us examples that we can learn from um, historically to be able to make sure we don't fall into those traps. Amen. All right. Well, Andrew, thanks for joining me today and uh, taking us on this very interesting journey. I, I was telling Andrew that this was very interesting when I was studying it. I was reading and it just it drew me in. And, and just all the different things are going on and some of the nuances that were in there. It, it was just very, very interesting. Baptists have a very rich history mm. um, and we have a lot to be thankful for. And then, like we said, you know, we can learn from the problems that were uh, in Christ church as well and how to avoid them. And I think that's some of the takeaways um, that we can we can pull from today. But thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Um, but until then, have a great weekend and Lord's Day. God bless.